Welcome to Neighborly. Life Support. House number 32, Little Street. Knock. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. I'm coming! Alcyone calls from inside the kitchen of House 15, hopping on one foot as they attempt to wedge the other into a heavy platform boot. After more struggle than they'd like to admit, it slips into place, their foot falling heavily to the floor with their full body weight. They yank the zipper closed with a huff and stumble to their front door. Their house today, were they to give it any mind, is a 1930s-style fixer-upper that could definitely use some fixing-upping. The kitchen is a gaudy canary yellow, with fixtures that definitely haven't been cleaned or replaced in a few decades. They may, perhaps, be looking forward to what it has in store for tomorrow. But I won't be spending long here today anyway, they think to themselves. Then they slam the door open. The being gives a quick chirp of surprise, narrowly missing becoming a pancake against the brick front of the house. Alcyone looms in the doorway, giving a crooked smile that's quickly obscured by their hair falling in their eyes. It's the same time every week, you know, the being chides, grinning. Alcyone rolls their eyes, leaning against the doorframe. Oh, I know, they respond, giving their friend a quick wink. I just like to keep you on your toes. The two kindly greet one another with quick cheek kisses before Alcyone closes their heavy purple door. Birdsong rings lightly through the humid air as companions link their arms together and fall into a similar quick stride. So, how is your Bentley doing? The being smiles. Very well, thank you, they reply. Then, they gently place a hand on their friend's bicep. And have you had any luck finding your fleeting lover? Alcini shakes their head. I'm still working on finding myself, I think. Maybe someday soon. They pause, looking around for a moment. Nobody called me the other day. They told me they were going to walk with us. Did something change? I think nobody wanted to show up a little earlier, says the being. Something about wanting to enjoy the sunset as they walked. Now it's earlier and earlier. That sort of thing creeps up on you, you know. Alcyone nods solemnly in response, adopting a faraway look and slumping shoulders. Luckily, they are pulled out of the reverie quite quickly by the stench that emits from house number 17. There is a silence as the pair look at the house, then at each other, then back at the house. I did it last time, the being mutters. And I did it twice before that, Alcyone replies through gritted teeth. Maybe so, their friend muses, giving a glance their way. But you've always been better with the birds. And also, one, two, three, not it. They quickly put their pointer finger up to their nose, and burst into a laugh that Alcyone couldn't help but join. Then, they grumble a reply just loud enough for the being to hear. You owe me. Especially after the bath incident. The bath incident in question, dear listener, was an escapade that entailed Alcyone and the being attempting, rather fruitlessly I might add, to force the human person that occupies House 17 to engage in some sort of personal hygiene. After all, the basement of the church they are on their way to at this moment happens to be rather stuffy, 
and an hour there becomes overwhelmingly unpleasant when all you can smell is birds, mess, and old paper. You could, of course, try to imagine it. But it wouldn't be anything like your subtle thoughts, because all three of the entities involved in this situation stand defiant in the face of mortal comprehension. But we can pretend, for simplicity's sake, that you can connect the dots. A hose, dish soap, squawking, chaos. When the deed was done, to the fullest extent it could have been, the being and Alcyone stood soaked in the former's backyard. It was a windy summer day, and the breeze was spinning knots into Alcyone's hair. Never again, they both swore, as a human person shot freezing bullets of water into them, shaking out their feathers. Never again. Time is a flat circle. Alcyone ascends the soul-crushingly narrow steps of number 17 and cautiously approaches the door crammed into its facade. Knock. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. The door creaks open on its own. No one lies behind it. If your definition of no one can include an unimaginable quantity of winged creatures whose eyes stay on Alcyone for just a bit too long for them to be comfortable. The back of their neck itches, prickly and hot. Like something is sitting beneath, waiting to spring out at any moment. Like something is moving underneath, of its own accord. Like something is watching, waiting for the moment to strike. They scratch at it with one hand while using the other to hold their nose, and begin their journey deeper into the labyrinthine structure to find the human person that lies somewhere inside. Heavens above the smell, the mess, the consumptive piles of marinating filth. We all do things we hate for the ones we care for, I suppose. The first step across the threshold is always the hardest, but the steps after that are never any easier. The entryway, which once might have been beautiful, is stacked from floor to ceiling with envelopes and paper and waste and birds. So many birds. Birds that sing and scream and flutter, their feathers pushing around stale air with each flap of a delicate and powerful wing. Through that, there is... a hallway? Alcyone isn't quite sure as they suffer a quick inhale, but they know from experience that this is the way through. It feels almost labyrinthine. Turn left, then right, go through the middle branch of the fork, right again, or was it left? No, it was right. Right. And then finally make it to the twisting, twirling stairs that led up to the human person's hidey hole. House number 15 had been a labyrinth like this once before, when Alcyone had brought home a particularly warm and ambitious man to share their company. Alcyone sets a foot on the front step, and is immediately confronted by the incessant squawking of a particularly annoying seagull. They retreat, and resign themselves to about twenty minutes of gentle coaxing, waiting patiently and tensely as the human person descends the stairs with caution and mistrust, blinking twice at their friend, before walking immediately past them to the front door. Alcyone is right on their heels, as they almost fall over gasping for breath on the porch as soon as they are awarded a breath of fresh air. They'll forward the dry-cleaning bill for their outfit to the being, they decide. That might be the only way to get the stench out of every tightly woven thread. The human person that lives in house number 17 doesn't mind much, and when an excited chirp steps in time with the being as they venture further down Little Street. Alcyone trails behind, grateful to feel the wind blowing against their back. The facade of number 32, once the trio reaches it, is a sight to behold. 
Ivy creeps up a grey stone building that has seen much better days. The vines creeping their way into all the spaces where weathering and lack of maintenance have left room. Even those strongest foundational bricks have seen the power of the natural world as Mother Earth's roots have laid their claim once more. The stained glass windows that line the building are filled with depictions of kind mercies granted by some forgiving prophet. Alcyone has seen so many rise and fall, but this one has managed to stick around. Good for him, they think. At times, it felt like those who worshipped in places like these could have probably done with a better understanding of the source material. But when number 32 was up and running, they did a lot of helping for a lot of people. A shame it's entirely derelict now, of course. But you test my patience to reminisce on those so quickly forgotten. The large wooden doors to the sanctuary have been long chained, its steps haphazardly graffitied by local budding anarchists. Padlocks, ribbons, flyers, and faded yellow caution tape all blow off the chain-link fence that surrounds the building and filled the air with a quiet cacophony of a modern dystopian wind chime. There was once a gate in that fence, but it has since been torn off its hinges and strewn haphazardly onto the dead grass. Beautiful weeds pushed through the scourged earth, living in spite of the world. Alcyone is careful not to step on them as they, matching steps with their friends, make their way to the back door. It is dimly lit in the stairway that wavers before them, a spiraling deep below the earth. The human person grabs onto the back of the being shirt with his taloned hand, like a scared child clinging to the mother's skirts. Up is good, down is bad, down is scary, and as the human person thinks about down, the feathers running down their spine stand at attention. At the back of the line, Alcyone feels the spiny heat beneath the skin of their neck stand on end too. A shiver consumes their whole body for a moment, as their shoulders hunch and their head recedes as close to their chest as it can. Clunk. Clunk, clunk. Clunk. The group descends, and as they do, the staircase fills with a yellow fluorescent light. Gentle chatter can be heard from the basement, laughter and gentle greetings and shitty black coffee being poured into styrofoam cups. The human person shields their eyes from the oppressive glow, but the being and Dalcyone can see the group gathered amongst a circle of metal folding chairs. Dr. Justin Casey sits in one of those chairs, legs crossed, his deep, russet brown skin complemented by a bit of flush across his cheeks. He wasn't expecting it to be so warm down here, but his new corduroy blazer so perfectly matches the flowers embroidered all over his button-down shirt. He nods to the new entries to the basement, and makes a few notes on his legal pad in looping, scrawled script. His free hand absent-mindedly reaches up to twirl one of his freshly retwisted locks, and watching all this from the chair next to him is a scruffy young man, Dave. Once a stowaway, Dave is now a full-fledged member of the crew of House 14. Went through all the space hazing and everything, bless his soul. He smiles into a lidless cup of coffee, and as he does, an oil slick of colour-shifting ooze drips between his teeth and splashes into the cup. His eyes weep the same fluid, and as he takes a long drink, it dribbles down his chin and onto the already stained ruff secured haphazardly around the collar of his shirt. There's something missing from his cloudy gaze, or perhaps there's something new that wasn't there before. Who's to say, really? Friends, calls Dr. Casey, 
gently scanning the room full of caring and compassion. Why don't we take our seats? I'm going to do a quick roll call to make sure I caught everyone. The gathered entities start to take their seats, their gentle chatter slowing to a comfortable halt. We have Dave, of course. The little man gurgles in confirmation. Nobody. Nathan. Calliope. Cordelia. Celeste. Nobody moves to sit next to Alcyone, passing them a cup and kissing their cheek. Meanwhile, the witches all float gently above their chairs, hands free, since they had already gotten to drink their starlight tea before gathering here. Staring blankly across the wall behind him, acting like he'd enjoy being literally anywhere else in the multiverse right now, is Nathan Foster, feet flat on the tile floor so as not to crease his brand new sneakers. Dr. Casey continues. The being, the occupant of House 17. The former happens to be coaxing the latter into a chair, as the feathered creature has fully covered their eyes, now rocking gently in their seat, claws clasped around its legs. Staring with innocent curiosity at the human person is a man, a sailor, covered in twisting tattoos in shades of ebony and charcoal and ash and lead. Alcyone, to one side of him, comes to a gentle awareness that he smells of salt air, as if he had just stepped off a ship, but also of ozone, as if his glance is charged with lightning. But this isn't his story. The doctor calls his name, Saix, and then moves along in the circle. And last, but not least, Alcyone, he finishes, looking up from his notepad. They wave. Their skin hurts. It would appear that we're missing a few people, but since we're already a little past time, I'm going to say that we can begin. I offer a welcome to those returning, my gratitude to those staying, and my understanding to those who wish not to come back. The doctor looks around the circle, then takes a deep breath, and those gathered follow his lead. Inhale. Exhale. Every new breath is an opportunity. I look into the eyes of eternity, he leads. It tells me that I belong here. They all respond. Now, he says, as usual, I'd like to open the circle to anyone who'd like to speak. I'll offer, as a gentle reminder, that our homework last week was to find some anchors, things that have stayed the same in your surroundings, and some that have changed. Nobody raises their hand. Dr. Casey gestures toward them to give them an opportunity to begin. Alcione and I did a little bit of discussion about this particular assignment a few days ago, and they said something that stuck with me since then that I've been trying to keep in mind. The resident of House 15 smiles and tucks a long lock of hair behind their ear as their friend continues. Change is good, because it means you're alive. I've always been a fan of routine, you know, so I thought I'd be spontaneous. This week, I watched the sun set instead of the sunrise each day. <laughs> and it was wonderful. The room buzzes with agreement, and Dr. Casey writes down a few bullet points. So many of these beings, he thinks, keep going on and on about having been on this street for an eternity. And he can't help but inquire internally as to that possibility. From what he understands, there's no way Little Street could have been around longer than a century. Are there other Little Streets? Or maybe, does this quaint little drive he calls home open the gates to other places? That would be ridiculous. He's not even sure if he believes in immortality. He'd never say that out loud, though. The human person from House 17 is staring daggers at him. Justin can feel it, even though he hasn't looked back up again. He's thought too much. I, Dave gurgles, before wiping his mouth on his sleeve and further staining the thin fabric, thought to start writing a song. 
I never wrote before. Never thought what I had to say really meant much. Haven't been... I didn't know this was forever until a little bit ago. Saw some things. Heard a bit. There are a few knowing nods in the circle. It's just nice to know I can use this to be different, you know? Dave's little legs swing back and forth as his bare feet don't quite touch the floor. He scratches his head, then starts chewing his thumbnail in the corner of his mouth. Anyway, it's kind of stupid, but I brought it and I don't really want to sing it, but I wanted to talk about it because there's sort of a list of my surroundings, like how the other Stegonauts use the songs to tell stories, and anyway, anyways, that's... that's it. Inky fluid starts to trickle out of his ears, and he clamps his hands over them tightly, curling himself into a little ball. Calliope puts a hand on his shoulder, cooing something lovely under her breath. I'm okay, Dave mutters, holding out a grubby hand with a thumbs up. A shift from reflection into present introspection, the witch says, coaxing the man next to her back into an upright position. Has been quite a lovely one, we found. This week, I noticed every day, at the same time, a parent walks their child home from school, and both of them wear their hair in two lovely plaits each. The elder always seemed to find so much joy in hearing her little one's fantastic adventures. Very good, says the doctor. It's fantastic the things we can notice when we search hard enough. Does anyone have, maybe, a change they've experienced? They've walked by my house as well, I think, says the being, but I could have sworn that yesterday the child was alone. Dr. Casey shifts uncomfortably in his seat, tugging at his collar. Yes, that's very interesting. <laughs> I mean, on the subject of people watching, Nathan grumbles, tapping his foot somewhat impatiently, as if he doesn't want to be here, which he obviously doesn't. Have you folks seen that one chick who keeps staring across the street? Like she's looking for something, or someone, or whatever. I don't know why she'd bother. Alcyone has never been the kind to intrude. They tend to attract attention, yes, but they usually chalk that up to looks and the general mysterious aura. But they don't like to interrupt. Doing such a thing would be incredibly rude, wouldn't you think? Alcyone hasn't quite been themselves lately, have they? They've been feeling odd, feeling off, feeling the veins beneath their skin moving and shifting and carving new pathways through their spirit. Every hair follicle has been a gaping wound, every inch of their skin a stretching canvas that some dark artist is moulding with reckless abandon. Such things aren't visible, dear listener, but they are constant, and change has always inherently been a part of Alcyone. They are, in and of themselves, a series of metamorphoses. They do so hate to intrude, but something has been creeping its way up their throat. It has a sharp point, and yet it clogs their airway with something growing and fanning out until they are choking, making horrible strained sounds, blood flying from their mouth and filling their senses as they sputter and cough and wheeze. Before they know it, they fall into the floor, and there are black spots dotting the edges of their vision, and everything is darkness and featherweight freefall. And then... The strong arms of Dr. Casey are wrapped around their waist, hoisting them into the air, clasped hands beating against their ribcage until the object is free. They fall limply to the ground, their hand clawing in vain at their throat and jaw, and up to their mouth, and suddenly they're pulling, gagging, as whatever this is frees itself from the windpipe. It passes their lips with a final spill of viscous crimson saliva, a single, slimy, blood-soaked feather. 
I think that's enough for the night. Dr. Casey blurts out, helping the fallen one to a sitting position. When Alcyone's gaze drifts up, the world hazy and spinning, they feel before they see. The eyes of the human person from House 17 transfixed on them. And they swear that somehow, though beaked and baleful, the creature smiles. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Cherylite 4.0 International License. Today's house was written by Emily Loris with dialogue editing by Kit Robson, soundscaping by Matthew O.K. Smith, music by Alex Schwartz, and art by Claudia Applart. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, 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 and who knows, eventually God might finally listen to us. Today's pewter locket opens to a blurry photograph of... Is that a cat? It doesn't seem to follow any Euclidean geometry. I have no idea how they got a photo of it. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.